People are often desperate to find some way to make their lives secure when the truth is this world offers no real security. You know, you could do everything right, quote unquote. You could have the best diet, exercise, you can work hard at a good job, you can make the wisest investments. You can train up your children the way they should go. You can set up the best security system in your house. You can build into the most advantageous relationships and still everything in a moment could come crashing down. Health can turn for the worse. Jobs can be lost. Kids can walk away. The market can crash. God forbid the Wi-Fi could go out. Relationships can dissolve. The world cannot offer true security, and yet, so many times we grasp at it. Our text this morning is Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 assures us of the security that we have in Yahweh, in God. Apart from the text, we don't know much about Psalm 91. It's, it's anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. We don't know the circumstances or the events surrounding the time that it was written. But we do know from the words that the theme of Psalm 91 is that God is our protector. In him, we have security. And as believers on this side of the cross... We can read Psalm 91 and be assured of our security in Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to outline for you four ways the Lord secures us. Four ways the Lord secures us from Psalm 91. Here's your first point. The Lord secures us completely. The Lord secures us completely. Follow along with me, if you will, Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Now, through the first 13 verses of this psalm, the pronouns that are used are a a you and I. There's a you-I dynamic going on. The author refers to himself in the first person as I or me, and he's talking to his audience in the second person, you. And here's what's interesting about that. That you there is singular. You. You. So Psalm 91 can be taken and you can personally apply it to whatever is going on in your life. It's like the author is talking directly to you. And also there's an interesting dynamic that goes on here as well. There's the first 13 verses is the perspective of the author speaking to the listener. But then when we hit verse 14, the perspective changes. More on that later. 
First, let's consider the first 13 verses where the author is speaking to the listener. And the author is using imagery. You may have picked up on that as Brad was reading. He's using imagery to describe how God secures us. That's not unfamiliar to poetry. Poetry often takes his images to communicate a truth. And that's exactly what the author of Psalm 91 does. Look back at verse 1. He says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He's using imagery there to communicate something. This idea of dwelling, dwell, is to inhabit. He who inhabits. It can also mean to sit or to wait. So picture that in your mind. The person who sits, the person who inhabits, the person who waits in the shelter. Now that shelter... That's the shelter of the Most High. It's, it, that shelter is, is a word for hiding place. It's a word for secret place. It's a place of protection, but it's not just any protection. In our psalm, it's God's place. God is described here as the Most High, and that's a reference to his position. God is the Most High. There's no one higher. There's no one with greater authority. There's no one who rules above God. If the universe were a table, God would be sitting at the head. No one higher than God. So to inhabit the secret place of God is to inhabit a place of divine protection. No one can reach you in the shelter of God. But the author goes on with the imagery here. He says, if you're in this secret place, you abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, that word abide has the idea of staying overnight. And then he uses this word shadow, which might not mean a whole lot to us, but if you think about it, shadows were very important in desert climates, which we can assume the author is familiar with, probably even lived, if he lived in Israel, lived in the desert. And in the desert, the sun is extremely dangerous. And shadows are scarce. If you find a shadow in a desert, you find a sanctuary. But you see, this is not just any shadow. This is God's shadow. To have God so near that his shadow falls on you suggests care and protection from hostile environments. Now look with me at verse 2. The author speaks of himself, and he says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is a declaration. The author is clearly stating he he who puts his trust in God as a refuge and a fortress. I put my trust in God. And those words refuge and fortress, they refer to protective structures. Protective structures. When I was a senior in high school, I was privileged to do a 10-day trip through France, England, and Scotland. I loved the castles. I know that probably surprises you. I loved them. I loved the thick, heavy stone walls, and you could see that they, they definitely provided protection from those inside. I remember one particular castle. They had slits in the outer walls of the guard tower where archers from the inside could shoot out at the enemy, but they'd still remain protected by the structure of the castle. And that's the way the author is describing God. He is a fortress. He is a refuge. He is a place of protection. And the author says, my God in whom I trust. Now that word trust there, that means to feel 
secure. To feel secure. It's, it's the ability to rely upon. And it even inspires confidence. So to trust in God is to feel secure in him. It's the knowledge that you can rely on him. And it even inspires confidence in him. That's what trusting God is. And the author has complete confidence that God will protect him. Look what he says in verse three. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Now, it's interesting. One of the things, as you work through Psalm 91, the author's going to lay out several dangers that we come across in this life. Several dangers are going to be listed throughout this psalm. And one of the ones that he defines here is the snare of the fowler. The danger of being trapped, in other words. Fowlers, of course, are bird hunters. And in the ancient world, they would often set nets to trap birds. God is pictured here as a deliverer, like someone freeing a bird from a net. But then he goes on, and he says, he says that another danger that's lifted in, listed in this psalm and listed quite, quite frequently is this idea of pestilence. It's sickness or disease, or even epidemic, God is seen as a deliverer from these things. He delivers us. Look at verse four. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Again, the psalmist is using imagery to describe God's protection. And here, the first thing we see is that God protects tenderly. God protects us tenderly. The author uses the image of a bird, a mother bird sheltering its young. That word pinions, that refers to the outer wing feathers. And you can picture in your mind God surrounding his loved ones like a mother hen surrounds her young. It's a metaphor for God securing his, his people, and he does so tenderly like a mother bird. And then he says, his faithfulness is a shield and buckler. God's face, faithfulness, that is, his trustworthiness, his consistency, that's what God's faithfulness is. He compares it to a shield and buckler. Now, a shield here, this is the large shield, not the smaller shields, but the large shield, almost like a full body shield is what the author is talking about there. God shields us completely. And the word buckler, unfortunately in English, the word buckler is like a small round shield that you hold with one hand, but that doesn't really capture the idea in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, the idea there for buckler is more of a wall or even a surrounding enclosure. So you see this idea, when God protects, he protects completely. God secures us totally. God's protection is not halfway. His security, the security that God provides for his people is described as complete. It's total. It's exhaustive. When God shelters us, he does it to the full extent. Think about this. Would you call one wall a house? No, it's not even a shelter. At best, one wall is a windbreak. God, when he secures, he's not one wall. His security is complete. It's a full, total structure. Anyone ever been in a submarine? No, one person, two people? Awesome, man, that's great. I've never been in a submarine. That would be an awesome experience, maybe. 
You know, in a submarine, it has to be completely enclosed. You've heard that joke, you know, screen door on a submarine. There's a reason for that. If you have one hole in a submarine, one hole in the hull, what's going to happen when you dive? You're going to take on water. And the deeper you dive, the more water you're going to take on. You wouldn't be completely protected. A submarine has to be completely enclosed to protect the sailors. That's the idea. God completely surrounds. He encompasses us for total protection. The person who cries out like the psalmist does in verse 2, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, is completely encompassed by the awesome protection of Almighty God. Now, how do we get this kind of security? How can we be like the author of Psalm 91? Well, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you already have it. If you are a believer, if you have confessed your sin to Jesus Christ and you've put your faith in the work that he did on the cross and in the grave, you already have his protection. Look at the language here. He will deliver you. He will cover you. God secures his people. It's automatic. If you believe in Jesus, it's automatic. You have his security. However, we can live in such a way that we're unaware of his protection. And when we live in such a way where we're unaware of his protection, we become fearful. If you think about it, it's kind of silly. Picture a soldier totally protected in a castle. And picture an army outside that castle attacking it with bows and arrows. And they're just shooting arrow after arrow after arrow. And all the arrows are doing are just bouncing harmlessly off the stone walls. But picture the soldier inside fretting and worrying and distressed that he's going to get killed by an arrow. I mean, it's honestly kind of silly to think that. But you know, that's sometimes how we live. We live sometimes like we're not in a fortress, but we're out in the open. We live with fret and worry and fear that God is not going to protect us when the whole time he's holding us securely in his hands. Now, what does this actually look like in life? It looks like this. It looks like fearing the unknown. It looks like asking the question, what's going to happen? You know, perhaps you hear your company is doing layoffs and you think, well, what happens if I get laid off? Perhaps you get an unclear report from your doctor and they need to run more tests. Taxes go up. Gas prices go up. Groceries go up. Kids get older and enter new stages and you think, how am I supposed to navigate this? We ask, what's going to happen? How are we going to face this? How are we going to afford this? Now, don't misunderstand me. Prayer thinking through things, making plans, good responses. But when we turn to fear and worry and anxiety, that's the wrong road. During these times, during all times, we must remember that God has us in his protective hands, completely surrounding and securing us. The Lord secures us completely. Here's your second point. The Lord secures us Thoroughly. He 
He secures us completely in that we are totally surrounded by his protection, but he also secures us thoroughly, that is, from every danger. Follow along with me in verse 5. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Again, you see that the author is using descriptive imagery to describe various dangers, terror, arrow, pestilence, destruction. These are words that describe a slew of different dangers. First of all, he talks about the terror by night. And I believe that means a couple of things. First of all, there's simply a fear that comes with night. Darkness brings its own sense of fear. Is anyone ever scared of the dark as a kid? Anyone ever scared of the dark now? Perhaps you outgrew that fear, maybe you didn't, but let me say this. Walking through the woods at night has a different feel than walking through the woods in the day. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely. There's a natural apprehension of the dark. That's one thing, but here's another thing. Nighttime brings out nocturnal beasts. Now, for us here in Illinois, they might not mean anything. But for the original readers in Israel, that meant danger. And it was danger upon danger because at night, you couldn't see them, but they could see you and they could smell you. So the terror of the night. Also, the arrow that flies by day, that's an allusion to battle. Again, in the ancient world, the fear of being attacked by an enemy was real. It happened all the time. Raiding parties would attack villages, Other nations would bring in armies, and if you didn't live inside the protective walls of a city, you were exposed to attack. Pestilence is mentioned again here, and of course, that refers to plague. It refers to sickness. It refers to epidemic, which was very common in the ancient world. And then you have this word destruction. Now, that's a funny word because it can also mean plague. It can also mean epidemic. But it can also refer to disaster or perhaps even natural disaster. Think of tornadoes or earthquakes. Each of these dangers are described. And then look at what the author says next. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. In other words, what the author is saying here is that the dangers may rage all around you, but they won't touch you. You will look at the destruction left by these dangers and will only see the recompense of the wicked. That recompense is the idea of retaliation. It's the idea of punishment. In other words, those who don't trust in God are open to his punishment and we will see them suffer such dangers as we ourselves are sheltered from them. We are spectators of these dangers, not victims. It's interesting. I actually heard a story where this literally took place. There's a church I'm familiar with, and perhaps you are too, in Peoria. It's called Summit Point. Several years ago, on a Sunday, The church had just ended their service and the people were leaving the church and they were walking through the parking lot and a tornado hit. 
ripped through the parking. Of course, people are, are dashing back to the church. There's even stories of people being picked up by the tornado and parking attendants are grabbing them and pulling them back down. It's crazy. It's a wild story. Not one person was hurt. Tornado rips through a parking lot on a Sunday after church and not one person was hurt. Almost as if God was saying, not my people. God secures us thoroughly. So what does that mean for us in everyday life? It means this. Whatever fears you struggle with, whatever attacks may come you, be they physical attacks, mental attacks, emotional attacks, spiritual attacks, whatever epidemics or pandemics that come our way, whatever natural disaster threatens our livelihood, we need not fear because God secures us. Not one danger can get through his hands to harm you. Not one. He is our refuge. He is our fortress, and nothing can penetrate the walls of God's protection. You are a spectator, not a victim. And that truth should obliterate every fear, every concern, every worry, and every doubt. The Christian should walk through this life heedless of danger. Now, before we get too big a head on our shoulders, let me give you a caveat. I'm not suggesting that we ignore personal responsibility. I wash my hands before I eat as a way of protecting myself from germs. There's good sense in that. I look both ways before I cross the street. There's good sense in that. It's personal responsibility. God protects, yes, but God does not condone stupid. He doesn't. God's not going to allow you to live a life of blind foolishness and not reap the consequences. Now, that's a double negative. Let me say it positively. God will allow consequences if we choose to live a life of foolishness. We need to be personally responsible for our actions as much as we can. And if a lightning storm rages around your house, don't pull a Ben Franklin. Don't go flying a kite. That's foolish. However, the dangers of this life are many. And when we are obedient to the Lord, he secures us. The Lord secures us thoroughly. Point three, the Lord secures us supernaturally. The Lord secures us supernaturally. Look at verse 9 with me. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. The Lord secures us supernaturally. Now, verse 9 opens with this assumption that we belong to God. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. Again, you have that I-U language there, the author speaking of himself to us. Then he says in verse 10, the result of that, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Verse 10 is almost a summary of the dangers we just outlined. None of these dangers, no evils, no plagues will come near you. God will protect you. Now, how will God protect us? Look at verse 11. 
For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder and the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. The text says to us, God will send his angels to guard you. Now, I want to say two things about this. First of all, we should ask this question. Is the author of Psalm 91 being literal or is he using more imagery? Is he saying that God will literally send actual angelic beings to protect us or is that just imagery for God's supernatural protection? Well, I think there's an argument for both sides. You know, based upon what I've studied, I do think there is a literal element to what he's saying here. I do believe that God sends angels to protect his people. Based upon what we know about angels, that they are God's messengers, they're powerful, they carry weapons, they fight demons, I do believe part of an angel's responsibility is to protect God's people. But I also see how this could be an allusion to God simply working supernaturally to protect us. That's the first thing I wanted to say. Let me say another thing, the second thing about this. And this, this can be a can of worms, but I'm going to open it. Psalm 91, 11 through 13, is it saying that we all have a guardian angel? Is that what the text is saying? And there are people who believe that. There are good people. There are strong Christians who believe that every person has a particular angel that is dedicated to them. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 18, talking about children, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, is Matthew 18 saying that each child has a guardian angel? It could be, or it may not be. It could be saying that everybody has a guardian angel, but it also could be saying that, in general, angels simply protect people. Maybe we have a guardian angel. Maybe every single person has an angel that protects them. Or maybe angels just simply protect wherever they are. For you sports people out there, you could think of it this way. Maybe angels play zone rather than man-to-man. I don't know. The truth is, we don't know. The Bible's not super clear on that. And here's the thing. When it comes to angels and demons and spiritual beings, we know about this much. I mean, we know frustratingly little about the spiritual world. I personally would love to know more, but God has seen fit not to disclose that much to us for his own purposes. And to God be the glory. One day in heaven, we'll know more. But I do believe that the psalmist is saying here that God protects us supernaturally, whether that's by sending an angel or moving in a a way unseen, he protects us supernaturally. He secures us even in ways we can't see. Look at verse 12. Talking about the angelic protection, it says, On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. The idea here, again, is protecting us from harm. There's imagery used here, again, pictures of stumbling, harmful beasts. These beasts might represent violent people. They could even represent demonic influence. But the idea here is that God will protect us from all kinds of dangers. He will do supernatural protection to his people. The Lord protects supernaturally.
Now, one more thing about this before we move on. Verses 11 and 12 might sound familiar to you. They were actually quoted to our Lord when he walked the earth. They were quoted by Satan himself. Matthew chapter 4. Let me just read Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 to you. Then the devil took him, that is Jesus, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan used scripture to try to tempt Jesus. Make no mistake, Satan knows the Bible. However, he misuses it here. He misquotes it. He tries to get Scripture to say something it doesn't really say as a means to try to tempt Jesus. If he could tempt Jesus, if he could, if he could allow Jesus to do things in his strength instead of relying on God, then he would win. It's almost like he was saying to Jesus, you know, the Bible says angels will protect you, so throw yourself off the temple. But you see, that's not the point of Psalm 91, 11, and 12. Again, God's protection is not an excuse to do stupid. Don't go to Staley Viaduct this afternoon and throw yourself off thinking angels will catch you. That's foolishness. Well, what should we do in light of Psalm 91? What should we do in light of this passage that angels will bear us up? Do this. Trust in the exhaustive resources of God. Trust that God in his infinite power can save you at any moment. God has an infinite number of resources at his fingertips to shield you from any Harm. He can send an angel if he wants to. He can supernaturally step into some area of your life immediately and shield you from harm. That's the power that God has, and that's the point of Psalm 91, 11 through 13. So fear not, Christian. Your security is bound up in a God who has infinite supernatural power that he can use at any time. Last point. God secures us personally. The Lord secures us personally. That is, he is personally involved in protecting you. We come to verse 14, and this is honestly my favorite part because here is where the author shifts perspectives. He's been writing from his perspective to the audience, but now he's changing and he's writing from God's perspective. And the pronouns you see even change. It changes from a you-I to a he-I. These words are written from the perspective of God himself. Follow along with me as I read verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him. Because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. What intimacy is captured in these words? God is personally involved in your security. Yes, he can send an angel. But you see, 
God doesn't just leave it up to the angel and then turn and go do something else with his time. God is personally involved in your security. Read it again, verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. Because I will protect him because he knows my name. Those four words there, hold fast and in love, that's all one word in the Hebrew. It's the word hashak. And it means very attached to, desire, devoted. It's actually used of a man loving a woman. It's intimate. And when we are attached to God in an intimate love relationship, he delivers us. He protects us. And that idea of protects in verse 14 there, by the way, that means to make inaccessible. When you are protected by God, you are inaccessible by harm. You are inaccessible by harm. Nothing can touch us. The Lord secures us personally. Look at, this, look at verse 15. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Now, this should remind us of Matthew 28. Some of the last words that Jesus said before he ascended, he said, we are promised his presence. Do you remember that? I will be with you to the end of the age. We are promised Jesus' presence. Psalm 91 tells us that God will be with us in trouble. That word trouble, that's the idea of need. When we are in need, God is with us. But there's more. He tells us he will rescue us and honor us. Do you see that? It's, it's literally honor. That's literally what it means. God will honor us. Not only will he be with us during a time of need, but he will rescue us and even honor us. He will take us from a place of trouble and he will put us in a place of honor, in a place of esteem. That's the God we serve. And he goes on to say in verse 16, with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now you may remember that long life in the Old Testament was promised to those who obeyed their parents. It's in the Ten Commandments. Well, in a similar way, God is saying to those who cling to me, I will bless them with long life, with long satisfied life. That word satisfied, it literally means to eat or to drink one's fill. So as one is satisfied with good food, they will be satisfied with long life. And he finishes by saying, and show him my salvation. That word salvation literally means help. I will show him my help. The person who clings to God will see God's help through all the dangers that come our way. God is personally, intimately involved in securing the person who deeply loves him. This is not an impersonal God. You know, other nations at the time that this psalm was written, there were other nations who served gods and they even believed those gods were distant, that they had to perform rituals to even get their God's attention. But you see, that's not Yahweh. The Lord is intimately involved in the lives of his people. This is the God we serve. A God who secures us completely, thoroughly, spiritually, and personally. Now, I need to address the elephant in the room. Perhaps you've thought about it. Perhaps after reading this magnificent psalm, we have to ask, what about the times he doesn't? 
Maybe you're sitting there and thinking, I get what you're saying, Pastor Ryan, but I don't always see God delivering us. I know people in distress. I know Christians, good Christians, who have experienced great suffering and they have not been delivered from the dangers of this life. Maybe you're sitting here and you yourself at this moment are facing a deep danger, a struggle, a trial, and you're thinking, how can this psalm say that God secures me when he hasn't? When Psalm 91 tells us that God is our refuge and fortress, that he secures and shelters and protects and delivers us, it is telling us the truth. God is in complete and total control of everything. He is in complete and total control of everything that happens to you. And when you are in the shelter of God's loving protection, nothing can get to you unless he allows it. See, what the psalm is saying here is that no harm in and of itself can get to you if you belong to God. Nothing, in other words, can overpower God and get to you. Nothing can work its way through his protective walls to get to you. So if you are facing a danger, if you are in a trial, if you are suffering, if you've experienced loss, it's been allowed by God. He let it come in that fortress. He allowed it to get beyond the borders of his protection. It couldn't get there unless he allowed it in. And this may sound strange, but we should take great comfort in that truth because if he is so powerful that nothing can get to you unless he allows it, then when he's ready, he'll kick it right back out. He only allows the dangers to come close for his purposes. So anything that you face has been allowed to happen by God and will be removed when his purpose for such a danger is accomplished. He has his reasons for allowing things to happen to us. And what are those reasons? You know, a lot of times we don't know. But I can say this. He's using the dangers that he lets in to mold and to shape you into his image. We may not specifically know why he's allowing bad things to happen, dangers to happen. We may not understand it, but I can tell you that in that time, what he wants you to do is to draw nearer to him. He wants you to trust him in whatever's happening. He's got you, and he's not going to let you go. He is in total control of the danger. He won't let the danger go beyond his own purpose for it. And that is a comforting thought. Do you remember what Jesus said when he stood before Pilate? At one point in John 19, Pilate is addressing Jesus. Jesus has been arrested. He's standing before Pilate. Pilate is questioning him, and Jesus refuses to answer. So Pilate finally says to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? 
Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. God allowed Pilate to have that authority, but at the same time, God was in complete control. But what did Pilate do with that authority? He surrendered Jesus over to be crucified. You know, we may face many dangers in this life. But as a child of God, there's one danger you will never face. Christ faced the cross. He faced the scourging. He faced the nails. He faced the crown. He faced the shame. And even after all that, he faced the wrath of God. That was the ultimate danger. Christ faced the wrath of God so that those who put their trust in him will never have to. That is one danger that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you will never have to face. Now maybe you're asking yourself, how can I have this kind of security? God himself answers that in verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. Do you hold fast to him in love? Do you know his name? I said at the top of this sermon, there is no security this world can provide, and that's true. Friends, there is no security this world can provide that even comes close to what God's offering here. So whatever thing that you might be clinging to for security, let me encourage you, release that and instead turn to the one who by his own blood purchased for you a security that nothing can overcome. Embrace Jesus now by faith. If you've never done that, let me encourage you, repent. Repent of sin and embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Turn and follow him. And if you have more questions on that, come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to share with you more about Jesus. My brothers and sisters, if you've embraced Christ by faith, let me just say this. It's still easy for us to cling to other things for security. Even as believers, it's easy to place our faith in our own strength or in some leader or in some ideology or whatever. Are you looking for your security in something other than Christ? You might ask, well, how would I know if I am? Let me ask you this. How's your level of fear? How's your level of worry? How's your level of anxiety? Those are warning signs that we are clinging to something else besides Jesus Christ for our security. Let me ask, have you loosened your grip on Jesus? Can't lose your salvation, that's not what I'm saying. But we can live as if we're not even aware of his protection. Here's the marvelous thing. If you've loosened your grip on Jesus, 
He hasn't loosened his grip on you. He holds you fast. He loves you and is tenderly calling to you to hold fast to him once again. How do I do that? How do I hold fast to Jesus Christ? Look back at verse two. The author writes and says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That's a declaration. And maybe you need to make that declaration again. Maybe as you face worry and anxiety and fear of what's coming in this life or the unknowns of life, you say in your heart, no, he is my refuge He is my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Preach that truth to yourselves. We're going to close in prayer. But before I pray, I just want to pause for a few moments. And I want to give you just a moment to pray in your own heart. If you're here this morning and fear, worry, and anxiety have been a part of your life, make that declaration in your heart. If you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, think about the words that have been said. And then like I already said, please come talk to me about it afterward. But let's go to a time of silent prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you provide true, lasting security. Thank you that you long for us to cling to you as our refuge and fortress. Lord, I declare right now, you are my refuge, you are my fortress, you are my God in whom I trust. Thank you that you provide security this world will never know. Thank you that you protect from dangers we could not shield ourselves from. Thank you that you took the danger, the ultimate danger, on the cross. Draw us ever closer to you, even if it means experiencing dangers because we know that you have complete control over everything that happens to us. Draw us closer. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.